So uh, Mary Kay Morrison, uh, welcome to The Journey. And uh, The Journey is uh, just a talk show um, podcast about um, transformation and how individuals um, throughout their life have either um, reconstructed their life, have failed forward, have found themselves with some type of obstacle in their in their way and how they work through that and on the other side of it, how then because of what they learned, they were able to um, maybe share with others uh, some of the things that they, uh, some of the gold that they got out of that experience. And so, well, welcome to the journey. I, I know we met uh, in person the first time uh, probably about a month ago. Right. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and um, it was it was a lot of fun, and and we'll get into that here probably in a little bit. But um, so, Mary Kay, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what do you do for fun? If you have a, when you have a chance, because you're a really busy lady, um, when you have a chance to relax, what do you do uh, for fun? What do you do to re-energize yourself? Well, I think I told you I'm a real swinger. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I have three swings in my backyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so in the summer, I really enjoy getting out there and relaxing. Uh, I've got three different kinds. Okay. I find it's good exercise. Okay. And it helps me to escape Okay. into nature. Uh, and it's playful. Okay. And okay. I love play. Sure. So I try to incorporate play into my life. As often as I can for relaxation and fun, and because I believe it's the way we learn and grow. Sure. So when you think of like when you go back to swings, when was your, your first experience? What do you remember first being on a swing? When did uh, oh first exposed to being a swing? My dad built a swing set for our backyard. Okay. And it was made out of um, I think PCB pipe or something like that okay. when it went up and around. Okay. And it was uh, he put it together himself, and I used to shimmy up the top and. The pipe was about that big, and okay. I would hang from the top and then sure. slither down the swing. Okay. And uh, But I loved swinging sure. and climbing trees sure. okay. Okay. <laughs> and so forth. So it was just – that was my first swing experience. Okay. But I've always um, enjoyed the motion okay. of it and All the right. freedom gotcha. that I feel when okay. I'm on a swing. Okay. Now, did you grow up around the Rockford area? or No, I grew up in Peoria. Sure, okay. All right. And so uh, so you uh, grew up in Peoria and go to high school there as well? And I then, did. And then, okay, and then, then life as it, as it happened, then you, where'd you move from, from Peoria to, it wasn't directly to Rockford, though? No, I lived in DeKalb okay. for quite a few years. Actually, my first teaching job was in South Streeter, Illinois. I was a kindergarten teacher. Okay. Right. And uh, uh, loved it, loved it. And I worked with high-poverty kids. Okay. Uh, at that time, I had 30 kids in the morning and 30 in the afternoon. Okay. And there were no support services. It was a very small school, uh, okay. and I learned a lot that year, sure. including don't put all the puzzles out at one time <laughs> <laughs> because you'll spend a couple hours at night putting them all back together again. <laughs> Trying to figure out all the pieces, sure. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, I love teaching kindergarten, and... I think I told you that one of my frustrations was as I went along in my career in education, there were a lot of mandates that came down from the state, mm-hmm. uh, including testing mandates. And my background was early childhood education, and I'm a firm believer in the power of play yeah. and laughter and fun as a way to learn and grow. So I was told that I needed to test these kids, five-year-olds, with pencils and paper 
and a lot of them were not able to do that successfully. Mm-hmm. So it was very frustrating. And even within our school, um, this was a ways back in time um, under No Child Left Behind, but we had to mail the tests into the state. And one of the teachers was so upset with the process, uh, and one of the kids was so upset that they threw up on the test. And she mailed the test that way oh. as a protest. <laughs> So there were a lot of us that were very frustrated at that time about uh, taking time away from kids' uh, development in Mm. the area that we knew was beneficial and forcing them to sit in their desks and um, study ABCs, for instance, or do paper and pencil work, Mm -hmm. which we know today is very um, adversarial to learning. So there's an interesting, well, just for the, for the people who are listening, just to get a little bit about your background. So you've been an educator for how long? Um, 50 years. 50 years. Okay. And your first, right out of college, your first educator, first uh, position was a teacher and that was the kindergarten teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you did your um, field placement or uh, student teaching assignment, was that, uh, was that in the grade school as well? Right, and okay. I've ended up teaching at every level. Every level, okay. Right. Um, went back and got my master's in adult education, okay. elementary education, and administration. Okay. So um, I kept going back to school. Sure, okay. <laughs> I love being a student as well as, as a teacher. So okay. I think uh, teaching is learning. Sure. You know, you always feel like you learn more than the kids do. Sure. And I, I know I can, every time I do a workshop or uh, do a seminar or even when I'm working with my clients, um, it's very much that, you know, the, the more that I don't think you can teach it to, to, to teach it means you have to, you have to have a level of knowing it. Right. And then, uh, but even in that um, interaction of the workshop or the interaction of, of the group. Um, I know for me, almost all the time I walk away with learning something that I didn't know. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's a lot about that back and forth, uh, the preparation beforehand, but then the experience of doing it, uh, I get so much out of that um, for myself um, mm-hmm. as well. So I'm curious about this idea <clears throat> of the tension between um, – uh, obviously there's a there's a level of importance of learning certain skills fundamental mm-hmm. developmental skills um, at those early grade school level so that then we can build on other skills um, later on and so I think um, there's this uh, belief that well you have to do it by um, you know doing the rows and memorization and regurgitation and that element of it but your your experience shows that you can do both uh so so tell us a little bit about your experience with that because that seemed at least that was my experience as a school social worker that was a lot of the emphasis was on um on memorization and you know certain techniques that could be used but it was a, a lot about standardized testing Right. And that would be how you measured if you had learned certain skills. Right. Um, but you, you've lived a little, you know, that there's, there, there's a different way of doing that. So tell us a little bit about, first, the whole experience of living in that tension, because there's a lot of pressure, and was back then, there is now for that. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Um, I love that question because uh, I really do believe in accountability. Uh, but when we talk about learning, uh, there's the standardized curriculum, which is the content. And I've actually got a graphic in my, a couple of graphics in my book that I wrote, Using Humor to Maximize Learning. Um, but we talk about content, and that's what we want kids to know and be able to do. Mm -hmm. But then surrounding that is the process of how do you teach. And there are many methods for teaching depending on your personality and what you bring to the, the kids that you teach. So every one of us brings different skills and strengths. And so we teach from our strengths, I think. Outside of that is where you teach. Um, that also impacts the learning process. So if you're in a high-poverty school, for instance, a lot of times, um, historically, those schools have not had the supplies and the resources that schools have had um, in wealthier suburbs, mm -hmm. for instance. And then the other piece that I think is critically important and why I talk so much about play and laughter and fun and the playfulness is the emotions that you bring and the students bring to the classroom because that's the dynamic that happens within the classroom is the um, interaction between all of the students and the adults that are in the classroom. And so good teachers know this. Mm. Um, they know they need to teach the content and they are obviously aware of the process that they like to use. And there's a gazillion different processes that teachers can choose from. And the environment impacts it as well. But if you have a child that comes to school that's angry or depressed or upset or hungry, all of that impacts their learning. And that's not something we focus a whole lot on in education. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we know that good teachers automatically do is they meet the needs of those children before they start the learning process. Mm -hmm. So if they have a child that's coming to school and they know that kid's angry, they're going to do whatever they can to change that child's state. Mm -hmm. um, that's not something we really teach in curriculum necessarily in colleges, but it's something that I've become passionate about is that how do we change that emotional state of a child uh, that's in the classroom and also the teachers because a teacher that's coming to the classroom that's angry about the mandates or like I was, and I've learned from that experience, that I was very frustrated mm -hmm. with the process of having to um, have kids learn how to take a test True. at that age. So um, I think there's a lot of components that are going on, but I feel like the most important thing is the emotional interactions that occur within the classroom. Mm -hmm. The number one thing that um, kids need, I think, today in order to learn at an optimal level is um, to be able to feel powerful and good and know that they can do it. And mm -hmm. that's what good teachers instill in their, mm -hmm. their students, as well as coaches and social workers and all mm -hmm. of the other people that interact mm -hmm. with their students, the students during the day. So I think... 
a lot of times someone may be listening to this, right? And and they maybe it's a parent, maybe it's someone else, and they'll go, okay. So I heard what Mary Kay said, and I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to know that they can do something, right? Whatever it may be, whatever the task may be, is based upon their age level. And so then they become their their child's cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that they tell them that they're they're great, they can do these types of things. But what if they haven't actually done those things or haven't actually developed a skill with it? Um, from a coaching standpoint, like when I was a football coach and, and um, in the weight room, there was times when people would come in and they would be ready to go and they'd be very confident, um, or at least they came across as being very confident. But when they when they came in, um, they had not necessarily been exposed to some of the things either with that sport or, or in the weight room. Um, how, how does play help actually build real confidence, not a false sense of confidence? I'm not sure that play in and of itself builds that confidence, um, although it probably does. Let me think about that a second. Um, as human beings, we have the longest period of play of any mammal. So the longer the period of play of any animal that there is, the higher their level of intelligence. Mm. And so human beings have a longer period of play. Mm -hmm. If that period of play is disrupted, or if children don't have that time that is allotted for them to learn through play, um, their capacity for learning can be inhibited. So I'm not necessarily saying that... um, you know, that you infuse play into the classroom, so to speak. But there should be a playfulness about mm-hmm. the, the situation and opportunities for kids to learn in a whole variety of ways that include um, activities that are um, fun and engaging. Mm-hmm. So the word play and engaging, I think, um, maybe need to be clarified a little bit. Okay. So the goal is to be um, have kids be engaged. Okay. And play is a way to do that. But early on for young kids, um, play is a way for them to learn and to grow and to maximize their capacity for learning. Mm-hmm. However, it's also been shown that adults are more productive when they play. So a lot of times when I started doing workshops, one of the things that I learned immediately was that um, if I would do a workshop for teachers, and there were elementary teachers there as well as high school teachers, that a lot of times the high school teachers um, would have a different focus or would feel like their students don't have time to play. Um, but I think that um, incorporating play, imagination, wonder, spontaneity are all important elements uh, for people to really think outside the box mm-hmm. and to be creative. Yeah, Am I, I answering your question? No, no it is. I had an experience, and, and I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, it was last summer, and it was uh, a couple of ladies who got trained, and it was regarding um, a certification in free play, and, yes. and 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 essentially about being able to provide opportunities right. um, for free play outside. And and there was an element when I went and observed this that we were they were in the woods and they had um, there was no um, 
um, there's some there were some overall guidelines uh, regarding safety and, and those right. types of things, but there wasn't necessarily any rules or any expectations, except that they had a given amount of time, and whatever you know that they could create whatever and um, and I remember observing that um, and that reminded me of when when I was younger um, in playing when I was in grade school and in we would go out and I happened to grow up <clears throat> in a in a, a, a new subdivision we were one of the first homes in that subdivision that moved into that area of the subdivision and it was great as as a kid one the weeds yep. you know the <laughs> the weeds were like taller you know they I don't know how tall they were but um but it seemed like they were you know six foot tall and we could build trails and take wood and different scrap from the scrap um where the construction site was and we would build these forts or build these structures or whatever and um and, we, and it felt like we were doing it for endless hours uh, of creating these things and you um you know, whoever the neighbors were, you were collaborating together and working, mm-hmm. working together, and um, and like, and it, we we do this forever. It seemed like, yeah, and you know, and we'd have different, you know, you know, go off into the woods and just follow the creek to the state park, mm-hmm. and um, and, and that's that's a a lot of my memories growing up, as well as some memories that I had growing up, um, on my grandparents' farm, yeah. and where of course you know there was. There were certain things that we had to be respectful regarding safety because there was a lot of dangerous things that were on the farm. But at the same time, um, I never remember being micromanaged. Um, I, I think now back going, what were my parents thinking? That I would go, <laughs> I'd be gone for hours at a time and no one, as far as I knew, they didn't know where, where I was. It just knew when to come back, you know, come back into the house. And, um, and I have a lot of fond memories mm-hmm. of that. Um, and then when my kids grew up, um, I don't know as a parent how I became so fearful um, of, of my kids. Now, maybe it had to do with um, the, the house, the very first house that we had was a very busy street. And it wouldn't have been safe um, to for them to play in the front yard. Um we literally had, we were there for like four years and we had the mailbox taken out like four or five times. So it was literally not mm-hmm. safe to be in this, uh, this particular road. But, um, and maybe it started there, this, this, um, fearfulness, um, that I had about, uh, about needing to monitor there, mm-hmm. um, when they were outside playing. Um, but I don't remember that was my parents' experience or my experience growing up with my parents. Um, so that's why I guess what I was just curious about mm-hmm. th- that level of um, y- there was a there was a, sub- a certain level of things that you l- I remember learning from mm-hmm. from a putting things together to creativity to I guess looking back on it now leadership there was mm-hmm. different things that um, I remember during that time period but it was all just in the sake of playing. You're absolutely right. You were a free-range kid is what we called him. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and we've lost a lot of that today because uh, parents are fearful. Mm-hmm. And there's also two things going on, I think. One is um, media has shared an exasperated fear because we hear about kids being kidnapped mm-hmm. and about kids getting 
hurt in different situations. And so parents want to protect their kids, which is awesome and should be. Um, but the other thing that's occurred is there's a real push. Uh, we were talking about sports earlier. In order for kids to excel or to get into the, the college that their parents want them to get into, as a society, we are really pushing mm-hmm. our children. And they are programmed from the minute they get up until uh, the time they go to bed. They're mm-hmm. in lessons. They're in you know, all kinds of different groups and um, pushed in school so that the kids are doing homework and they're, they don't have time for the free-range kind of thing that you um, were fortunate to experience. And I was, too, as a kid. We went out in the alley and played kick the can, mm-hmm. you know, and rocks and gravel. And I know I had pebbles in my knees a lot of times from, from flying through the air. Uh, and landing on the the gravel. Um, But um, today we have built a protective bubble around our children, and I'm um, advocating that we give kids a little more free range. And what you were talking about in the forest is what we really like to see teachers do in the classroom, is set up um, opportunities for kids to explore and to um, tinker and to create and when you think about some of the great minds of today, for instance, um, the um, people that developed, um, you know, in their garage, uh, the origin origins of um, what we have now as our little phones sure. that we hold in our hands, and that was developed tinkering in garages. Mm-hmm. And uh, Google today has playrooms, McDonald's has playrooms. So they let their engineers and their um, inventors have some free range of exploring and inventing. And why are we taking that away from our kids in schools? Mm -hmm. In other words, set up the environment so children have the opportunity to learn the content, which is important, but the process can be play um, activated or um, shared through experimentation and giving them the materials and letting them figure out how mm-hmm. uh, to develop and to grow that way. Yeah. So the content is still the same, and so you have the idea that you still want them to learn that content, but the process can include a lot of play, a lot of engagement, a lot of giving children challenges and say this is where you know, this is the um, what we would like you to think about and how are you going to get there. And having them engage as a group instead of sitting in a desk by themselves but teaming them up with other people so they can explore together. And like we hope in the workplace today that people will engage in conversations um, between themselves mm-hmm. and come up with ideas and generate and increase productivity in, in the the business wherever they are so we've lost a lot of that in schools when we're having kids sit in desks and do paper and pencil work it can even be brought my favorite activity was a um i was very fortunate i worked at the regional office of education here in boone winnebago county and i had the opportunity to be in um visit with teachers from over 200 schools And I learned a lot from those teachers about how they were setting up their classrooms and how they were teaching. Um, And I brought humor. My my workshops were on um, using humor to reduce stress. Uh, 
and to bring play to the classroom. So I did a lot of those workshops. And Dr. Fairgraves, who was an amazing boss, and um, one day I went to him and I said, these teachers are really stressed. Can I have a workshop on um, how to use humor and play and fun to reduce the stress in the classroom along with the kids? And he said, sure. So I started working on the brain and how we learn. And I was able to go to a lot of workshops on the brain and learning. And I learned more about play and about how we can interact and how our brains learn best. And lecture is actually the worst way that we learn. Mm. After 10 minutes, the brain goes to sleep. So the interact of the engagement is so critically important. And how can you have fun with your kids when you're teaching and learning, whatever you do, when you're coaching or as a social worker? We know that kids will relax. That angry child, if you can get them to laugh, then anger will dissipate. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back a little bit just to hear (laughs) a little bit about this part of it. And and because I I, I get a sense that you – innately knew this mm-hmm. but you hit as you said you were coming up against resistance so mm-hmm. one you know what was the reason you wanted to become an educator how did mm-hmm. that all come about and then and then this whole idea this commitment to um using humor using play um, so first tell us about why why become an educator what, what what was that what was the reason why you wanted to become an educator Oh, when I was a kid, I pract- I have, I'm the oldest of seven, so I always played teacher. <laughs> sure, okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, um, I like to have fun with the kids. I mean, I just, it was just fun. And kindergarten was just a lot of fun. You never know what to expect mm-hmm. with kindergarten kids. And actually, you don't, in any level of interaction. So, um, you know, I... I was thrilled to be a teacher, and I think teaching is an amazing occupation. Um, teachers are stressed today, mm-hmm. very stressed. I have a daughter who's teaching, okay. uh, seventh grade science, um, in a high poverty school. And um, so I'm listening to her several times a week, talking about the challenges um, that we have today in education. Um, for instance, why are we in, in schools doing cookie sales to raise money for books for the library when businesses and industry really can go out and they don't have to do it that way? They can get the funding. So funding is, a, is an important, critical part of education. Um, I really feel like we need to um, think about how we fund education and think about how we um, – focus our, our teachers and give our teachers the support that we need. I am veering way off from the question yeah. you asked. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> so sorry that, about that's that. A, that's okay. But I, uh, you asked me how and why I think education is important. I think it's the foundation for sure. what we do as a, as a society, yeah. and it's critically important. Um, and well, let me ask you, do you think humor is important? For I think for me... Um, as a counselor, you know, it, it is very much part of that initial initial interview, initial time when I meet. Um, and again, it depends on the person, depends on what's going on. Um, um, I think there's a there's a way of being um, being playful or being um, 
you know, more lighthearted, um, it's already serious enough. You're coming to counseling, it's already serious enough. If you're going to a workshop on whatever it may be, it's already serious enough. And so if there can be a little bit of lightness, um, that seems to break some of that tension because um, in, 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 in the counseling world, there's a lot of um, anxiety, a lot of fear mm-hmm. around first coming in. I mean, it's, it's a pretty unnatural process right. um, to come in and talk about um, stuff that I wouldn't normally talk about to people that I do know. Now I need to talk to it about someone that I don't know. Um, I, I think there is that element that, um, so that for me, I think that is a way of kind of um, breaking some of that initial tension. Um, just recently, I was uh, had the honor uh, honor and opportunity to officiate my nephew's wedding, and um, it, and I didn't realize at the time that I was I must have must have been a little bit more um, nervous than I thought I was, right? And so, and the reason why I say that is because I practiced so much beforehand, so I had practiced all these different times of what it was going on, and there was parts that I had to memorize um, of it even though I was reading it. Um, and that's not my normal style of right. teaching. Uh, and um, so as we were coming down, uh, the the bride and her father were coming down, and there was this part in it where I was uh, supposed to say, um, who gives this uh, woman to this man, right? And as they were coming down, everyone was nervous and every, you know, because the spotlight was on them. And the night before I practiced it perfect. Everything went fine. And I go out and I start, you know, who gives this man to give to this other man? Or I don't even know how I said it. <laughs> and everyone started laughing. I said, well, I guess the, I guess the tensions broke now. And there was this, you know, element of everyone was a little bit more at ease. Now, I would love to say that I was a genius and I planned that. That was not the case. I didn't plan it. It just happened. Um, it was probably the right thing. It wasn't necessarily planned. It was It was, It was. was the perfect thing to happen, I should say, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't a planned thing that happened. But again, it was, it was that there was an element of humor in it um, because it was such a serious moment. And that seriousness was almost taking away from um, the authenticity of that moment. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, so for me, I definitely believe that uh, humor is part of that. Um, and I, you know, I, I know we were talking earlier about how, um, you know, because some people are very serious and there's different reasons why they may be very serious. And, and it goes to that, maybe that blueprint of when they were growing mm-hmm. up. What was their experience like growing up when it came to play, when it came to being playful, um, or just humor in general? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so maybe talk a little bit about um, that piece of the, uh, the essence of how, because some people in your workshop would go and conceptually they get it, but this is work and I can't be, I can't be, it can't be fun or funny. Um, it's serious. <laughs> and, um, and I can just, I have pictures in my, I have images <laughs> in my mind of certain instructors that I had in the past that were very serious about the topic they were teaching because it was a very important topic to them. And it just made it extremely boring. Right. Um, for me, at least. It made it boring for me. So, so maybe touch base a little bit about, um, for some people, it may be easier. Exactly. Uh, uh, and it may be more natural, maybe not easier, maybe more natural. Um, they're more familiar with using humor or using uh, play or playfulness when interacting, either 
with their own kids or grandkids um, or in the workplace. So, so t- Ooh, a lot of, lot of questions yeah. here, lots to cover. But I think um, you've touched on several things, Kevin. Um, we don't, everybody says humor is important. So I asked you if you thought humor was mm-hmm. important. And you talked about how um, it relieved the seriousness of a situation where you were a little bit tense. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we know is everybody, I've never met anybody that says it's not important. Sure. But we don't study it. We don't practice it and we don't promote it. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like we, um, one of my passions is to, sp- I'm past president of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, and that's what we do. Our mission is to study, practice, and promote healthy humor and laughter. And so I've been studying humor and laughter for about the past 20 years. Okay. And um, one of the things that when I do workshops is We talk about um, how you develop your sense of humor, whether it's nature or nurture, which is what you were talking about earlier. And that does impact your humor style. So people have different humor styles, what they're more comfortable with as far as how they use humor. But also, um, if you grew up with parents who did not like humor or value it, who were very work-oriented, and who, when you were playing, um, either inhibited it or got angry with you about using about playing or not working, it's harder for you to really nurture your own sense of humor. I think everybody has the capacity mm-hmm. for using humor and enjoying life through humor and play. But it's more difficult for people if they've been programmed to... Um, be a workaholic, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on your how you grew up, your nature, um, your temperament plays a huge role. Mm-hmm. So when you look at your kids, um, I've got four children, and they all had different personalities, believe it or not. Sure, yeah. And so uh, there's a great book called Your Temperament Perspective. And some kids are actually born laughing, and mm-hmm. other kids are born more serious. So your temperament plays a role in your sense of humor. And your parents, of course, or your significant others play a huge role in that. So I ask people to think about how did you grow up, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you feel when you play? So my father was always playful and having a good time and joking and laughing. And my mother was much more serious. And so when I start doing playful and fun things sometimes I hear my mother's voice in my head saying you need to buckle down you need to be serious Mm -hmm. you know that voice is always there and so how do you overcome um, when you study the brain uh, and it's really fascinating now because we used to when I was learning about education um, the only way we learned about behavior and about learning was from psychology studies. Today we have brain scans, mm-hmm. and we have, um, so we have that technology. We also have cellular research that actually uh, does examine what happens to your body physiologically when you're laughing, and what happens to your brain when you're laughing. Mm-hmm. And they're actually able to take pictures of people's brains when they're laughing and having humor. There's actually a school in, um, a lab school in Utah that takes a look at kids' brains when they're studying and learning. Mm-hmm. 
and what areas of the brain are lighting up. Um, and let me put a quick plug in for our conference that we're having in, in May of this year, uh, the Association for Applied Therapeutic Humor Conference. We have a neuroscientist coming who studies the brain and humor. So he studies what goes on in the brain when you're laughing and having fun. He's also a comedian. Okay. So he should be a lot of fun. Sure. So um, uh, people want more information, they can contact me. But let me go back to, I think that everyone has the capacity for improving their sense of humor. And they call that your humor practice. Okay. And it's like anything else. You know, in order to get better at it, um, you have to practice it. And, and so I compare it to physical fitness. You know, I want to be physically fit in order to do that i need to work out on a regular basis so i ask people to observe their current sense of humor how often did you laugh today journal about it write about it at at night journal about what you made you laugh during the day um and for people that are in the business um you know you can learn a whole lot more about humor therapy which is a we have some psychologists that are actually using humor therapy in their practice now, using humor to help people get through anger and grief. Mm-hmm. Um, several of the people in our organization are actually dealing with humor and grief. And how once you're able to laugh about something, you know you're starting to heal. Mm-hmm. And so cool. I just want to go quickly about the brain and what happens in the brain um, for instance, if you grew up like with parents or someone who, I give the example that I grew up with five brothers. So my mother made a cake every day. So my neural pathways in my brain are hardwired for sweet. <laughs> and a lot of people I think have that. And I'm really trying hard to make it broccoli. Mm-hmm. And so those patterns of behavior in the brain, if you have anger about something, that can be a a pretty strong pathway in your brain. And one way to change that pathway is to try to include more humor into your um, life when you're feeling going through those feelings. So breaking and changing those neural pathways in your brain, um, interjecting play, interjecting humor, um, fun, as a way to um, change those patterns. So you had said something inter- interesting before, and I guess that's maybe where uh, you know I'm thinking about some of the people that are listening to us. So some of them may be educators, some of them may be counselors, some sure. of them may um, be working in, um, in just workplace, whatever it may be. Um, I was doing some consulting work for a company. It's changed multiple times right now, but at the time it was called United Technology uh, and um, or used to be called Sunstrand. And um, I think it's called Collins now. And uh, But it was aerospace industry. Uh-huh. And we were looking at, um, there was a lot of, there was, at that time, it was, there was a lot of tension mm-hmm. between management and the labor force um, for a handful of different reasons. And, um, and so the culture in itself... Um, I guess for a lack of better words, may have been 
um, toxic at the time. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of fear um, that that was going on on both sides. And and then, of course, it seemed to be put toward them. And I remember um, the individual that I was working with at the time, Steve Seip, um, he and I um, did some research, and we um, did research on... um, Pike's Place Fish Market. Yes. Uh, out in Seattle. They have a whole program. Yes. And one of their tenants just play. Yeah, and that that was the you know the they get they became famous right yeah. um, because they would it was a fish market and they would throw fish right. and used a lot of humor when yeah. they were interacting with um, with the customers. Exactly. And it, it, I think it was the combination. I mean, in itself, the idea that they were throwing fish and catching the fish, mm-hmm. right? But it was it was probably as much to do with the humor part of it, right, and the playfulness that was going exactly. on. I mean, how could you be throwing fish at this, you know, kind of a drab? Mm-hmm. It was a fish market. I mean, everything from the smells to the to the mess to everything, right? And and I remember at that time looking at this idea, and clearly they were having fun. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it was part of doing uh, a loud. That the when the work as the work became more and more difficult, or looking forward to going to work, especially during difficult, the idea that this culture of of mm-hmm. play, this was the expectation. This is what we're going to do. We're going to engage the customer. Um, it, it, it seemed like it was a perfect fit for what we're talking about. But we were working in an aerospace industry. <laughs> what we're going to throw airplane parts i mean what how what we you know how what were we, we so i remember steve and i wrestling with this idea it, it had didn't have to do with throwing fish um that was just what they happened to be doing mm-hmm. was you know what they did at their in their particular industry but it was about that playfulness exactly so let's let's talk a little bit about how do you incorporate this concept into if it's if it's the grandparent who is picking the kids up from school, or, or bringing them to school, whatever, or if it's um, you're working at a gas station as a gas station attendant, or you're wait, you know, whatever the industry may be, um, how would we incorporate um, more of a sense of of play in our in our work first? Because I I think we have to first do it with ourselves mm-hmm. before we can do it with someone else. It helps to have a humor buddy. <laughs> sure. And my humor, one of my humor buddies who helped me found the Humor Academy, uh, which is a pro, three-year program. You end up with a certified humor professional designation. So if anybody's interested in learning more about this topic, uh, we have the program for you. But you're exactly right. The um, whole idea of playfulness um, and incorporating that into your uh, workplace Uh, Karen and I talk often about, um, and she has coined the phrase, it's not about being funny, it's about seeing funny. Mm. Seeing funny. Seeing funny. So whatever it is that you're looking at in life, if you can flip it and make it fun and funny. And we have people in the association who are dealing with hospice, who are dealing with grieving people who are helping them to see funny. Several of them are authors and have written about their transformational journey about how do you see funny Mm -hmm. with whatever it is you've been dealt with. And so I love that Karen came up with that phrase because when I tell people I do humor, 
they say, you do what? And then they say, tell me a joke. Make me laugh. <laughs> sure. And that's not what it's about. It's about um, actually trying to bring more joy and laughter into your life. And again, once you're able to laugh about something, if you look at funerals, if you look at obituaries, actually it's very interesting to read obituaries. I think one out of three talk about a person's sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, But again, we don't study it. We don't practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're at a funeral, a lot of times what happens is you're all grieving and you're very sad and serious until somebody starts telling funny stories mm-hmm. or remembering people. And people laugh. Laughter and tears are very closely related. Mm-hmm. And once again, you, when you start laughing about something or you're able to laugh, you know you're starting to heal. And I want to bring it back to schools again because, again, we have a lot of kids that are hurting in schools, kids that come to school that are, that are um, you know, in pain in one way or another. And so, again, um, it's that um, ability of a teacher to use a process to inject something, a little teasing, a little recognition, a little ability to, to help that child through whatever it is, that a story, and to find some funny or some fun in their day so that they can laugh in the day somewhere along the line. Um, one of my favorite stories, and I've been doing workshops for teachers for over 20 years now, um, studying the brain and humor, because it's not just injecting humor in the content and in the process and in the environment, um, but also in assessment, because you mentioned earlier, we need to know that people have those skills. Mm-hmm. And my favorite story is about a seventh grade teacher who told me that he had all of their students read the chapter in the book, and they had to design an assessment question using a riddle or joke. So every question on that assessment was a riddle or joke related to the history of the paragraph that that student had to read. So the kids loved taking that test, that assessment. One of the assessments that I always do at the end of a workshop, because I like to see if people learned what I taught them during the the time that I teach. Um, I have a little plastic ball that I throw, and it has been more fun because a lot of, I've done a lot of groups. I've done, worked in banks. I've worked with financial advisors. I've worked with people from all walks of life because humor is universal. But I ask them to, fill out an index card first on the first side is aha what did you learn today and the second side is haha what do you hope to do to improve your humor practice taking this out into the world and then I have a ball toss and when they catch the ball they have to tell either their aha or their haha so what are they going to what did they learn or what are they going to do as a result of what they did with me that day so the assessment process is really interesting as well. And we can inject humor. I, when I, I, in my book, I talk about hook, line, and sinker. And you talked about hooking people with humor because a lot of people do that. They like to get people to laugh at the beginning of a workshop. But also the line, which is the actual material that people have to use or learn. And injecting humor along the way. Mm-hmm. And then using it in the assessment process. 
I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. I want you to. I want to ask you what is your very first memory of school? And so, kindergarten, first grade. What's your very first memory? Uh, it's it's more of a general, probably generalization. I remember. Um, I went to a, a, it was a huge building and the kindergarten room was at the, in the, in the low, like a kind of a, like a lower level. And I remember that, um, there was a huge, huge carpet and there was a lot of toys or a lot of, they were all neatly put away and stuff. But I remember there was an element of playing there and I remember, uh, interacting with those toys. And then I remember the playground um, uh, of you know the playing on the playground. It reminded me a lot of. Um, it was also very similar to when we went, when I went to church, and the the nursery um, that we that would play in. You know that we during church service or whatever. It was all pretty similar, and so um, so I, I just remember that. Um, and now as I'm thinking about it, there's probably there were some tables there that you would sit at. And, um, you know, that what emotion do you remember? Um, it, uh, con- there was a contentness. There was a, um, an element of safety. That's good. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that. When I do workshops, I usually get quite a few stories about fear and anger experiences. Um, a lot of people do have some good experiences, like your experience sounds like it was good. Mm -hmm. But I've had stories of people. For instance, my story is um, I got put in the coat closet for talking too much. Mm. You find that hard to believe? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was mad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my fault. Mm And I remember that. Yeah, it yeah. was the girl ahead of me. Yeah, she yeah. started it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that feeling of anger, you know, and I've had a lot of people. Ex- and so that experience, uh, strong emotions put information into the long-term memory. Mm-hmm. So yours was a safety and contentment. So your memory is pretty safe and content. But a lot of people uh, relay memories of... Um, being in a fight or getting hurt or being really scared. Uh, no, you asked me specifically about kindergarten. Now, if you would have asked me about later in grade school, then it, there would have been some of that yeah. later in grade school. Um, but K through third grade um, was, and that was in Rockford, and I remember walking to school, you know, as a, as yeah. a small person. And when I was, when we moved out of the district and moved to a different district, it was different. You know, it was a different mm-hmm. experience. Um, and the school was different and, and maybe it was because I was, you know, a new kid to the school. Um, but, um, there was definitely more, more tension, more, um, anxiety, maybe a little bit. Yeah, more. And there was, well, the anxiety came because there were some kids, it was probably the first time I ran across kids that were mean kids. Um, you know, I wouldn't have used the word bullying back then because I didn't know that word then. Um, but there was kids that were mean and um, and I had only experienced that once before, <clears throat> growing up, and um, and so uh, so now now there was certain elements about school that wasn't safe. 
one of the things, one of my job experiences is I worked at a community college and I um, worked with people in the GED program and the teen parent program uh, before I was started at the regional office of education. And um, those parents, those people would dropped out of school because usually of a really negative experience. They felt dumb. They did not have success in school. And the reason they dropped out, and one of the my aha moments um, was a man who came in and said his son was having trouble in school. And he started crying and said, my son is as dumb as I was. And it's not that they were dumb, but their learn schools were not designed for their type of learning necessarily. And we're learning a whole lot more about that today. Um, and that's why the whole idea of designing um, rooms so that kids have opportunities to make choices. Choice is extremely important um, in that process of teaching, that teachers give students a choice in how they're going to learn. Um, well, you know, it's interesting for me as a social worker, and specifically a school social worker, is that having those choices, I would think, and I didn't think about this until right now, is that having those choices would then allow the teacher to then assess what is this particular child's or student's learning style yes. and then teaching them to their learning style yes, versus trying exactly. to have everyone have the same learning style. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And But I'm not aware of what, you know, what, um, at a, at what teachers or, or even part of the curriculum are they looking at learning style. Mm -hmm. And so if, you, if there's a mismatch um, between learning style and the teaching style, then there is going to be that sense of um, I'm less than yes. compared to the person that is being taught to their learning style. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's another whole topic. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, just recently Dalton and I were talking about this, and he's, he's a wrestling coach, and his primary thing is wrestling. And he in wrestling, it's a, tough, it's a tough sport. I mean, and there's a lot of hard work that comes with it. But I remember him talking about this idea of, um, do you like to wrestle? Are you, um, I don't know if he used the word fun or not, but, you know, is, is it, um, do you want to wrestle? Do you like wrestling? Or is it just about the outcome um, aspect of it? And there needs to be this element that if we're going to be doing something, that we have to figure out how to make it fun, right? How, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard work. That doesn't right. mean that it's not going to be serious and that we're not going to, you know, need to put in the diligence to learn the skill, um, the skills, but is it fun? Is it enjoyable to do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a month ago when we met, that was probably what stood out to me, um, was this idea, like, I believe for my therapist that worked for me at KP is that I need, I need them to do their work on themselves so that they can be available for when their clients come in. Mm -hmm. I need them to be able to enjoy what they're doing, regardless if it's the, the therapist or the front desk staff or mm -hmm. the person answering the phone, right. um, that I want them to enjoy not only the environment, but enjoy what they're doing because then it's a whole lot easier for them to do what they have the, mm -hmm. you know, what's expected of them regarding work. And I, I think of, you know, this idea of finding the joy in whatever activity it is, mm -hmm. you know, we, 
because I think there's that misnomer about humor, right? Sure you, is, yeah. this, this idea of humor is like a Robin Williams or, right. uh, or, or some type of stand-up comedian. And maybe if it was like Robin Williams, who I think that even though he struggled with a lot of different things throughout his life, it's according to what I've understood, I think he saw the world through that lens mm-hmm. um, of, of how to play. Mm-hmm. I don't think he accidentally played characters like Patch Adams. Um, you know, I don't think those were accidents. I think those were natural extension of who he, Absolutely. Who, yeah. he who he is and who he was. And um, and I think of that when I think of some of the things that you're inviting people into doing is to find the joy. Mm-hmm. You, you use the word humor. You use the word play. But find the joy in, in who they are and what they're doing. And, um, and for some of us, you know, we, we may need the intellectual and the educational background so that we can be convinced to allow ourselves to go into that process. Mm-hmm. Others of us may just naturally go, oh, we're just getting permission now to do it. <laughs> and, and, oh, I've had or, a lot of people tell me that. <laughs> or or maybe, I w- maybe now I have something to back me up so I won't get chastised anymore exactly. for, for doing it. But, um, but I think, you know, in all those different things, I, I think it, inviting people into this process of finding joy in their life mm-hmm. um, and being joyous in what they do um, through play, even when maybe they're an accountant. or right. um, Because I agree with you. When I, when I go to the schools and I talk to the, the students about bullying or suicide um, or the factors that lead to suicide, um, you can the tension's pretty, pretty high, especially if they've lost a fellow student as a result of that. Um, but I'll, I will definitely. I know that the stories that are probably remembered the most are the ones that have some level of um, playfulness tied to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I definitely appreciate everything that you're doing. Can you just give us a couple minutes about this, uh, the Academy of Humor that you, you're talking about? <laughs> I'd love to. And to. Just maybe give us like a two minutes of that, um, sure. of, about a little bit about that. About 10 years ago, uh, I worked with several people in the organization, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, on the need to educate people about what humor and laughter and play are. And again, playfulness and play lead to humor. Mm -hmm. So um, we decided to uh, start a humor academy. Uh, I had been doing workshops at the regional office on humor and laughter and play and the ability to to, um, combat stress and had written my first book, Using Humor to Maximize Learning. So that was used as the text for the first class Um, the classes are through the organization and they are yearly so they begin at the conference so if someone is interested in becoming a certified humor professional it's a three-year program and it starts uh, may 14th this year in new orleans and uh, so you're put into a group it's a study group but it's also a support group people supporting each other in the practice of humor and they meet once a month via zoom and they talk about the text and how they're incorporating humor into their lives Uh, first year is theory which follows our mission to study the second year is practice and they do a project based on humor 
and we have got projects uh, from all realms of life. Um, grief. Um, one woman has done healing headbands for kids that have cancer. Um, and so the second year is of study. And again, you're meeting with a group each month um, and learning about humor. So the second year is practice. And the third year is leadership, is how do you share that in your field of practice? For instance, in your field, how would you incorporate humor, therapy humor, into your, your practice, into the culture, which I commend you for recognizing that you want a culture of play and laughter and relaxation because that will enable everybody in the office to do a much better job and be more productive. So um, the the conference start is a four-day conference and students that enroll in the Humor Academy, and we have people from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, psychologists, um, financial advisors, uh, a lot of social workers, um, nurses, educators. So the fun part is that humor is universal. It applies to everybody, and I think everybody can improve their sense of humor <laughs> and enjoy life more and have more fun. So, Perfect, Mary Kay. If you, if, as we're getting ready to wrap up for today, if there was one thing that you would want to share with the people that are listening, what's, what's one thing you'd want, to, want them to walk away with for our conversation today? Um, try to see funny today. Uh, perfect. <laughs> the best way for people to get a hold of you if they want to learn more about either the academy or, or any or, or just follow you, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on all social media. Okay. Mary Kay Morrison. I have Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook okay. accounts. And um, Mary Kay at Quest for Humor okay. is my email. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you, you very much for being here. Thank and I you. know you have a, a busy weekend coming up and a busy week this week with some speaking engagements. So uh, have fun with that. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for being with us today and um, listening to um, Mary Kay Morrison as she shared about how um, humor and playfulness and uh, and just the use of play to uh, help in the learning process as well as finding joy in her life as well as others. Uh, thank you for being with us today and look forward to being with you next week.